the first the first part that we put to, together today so tonight was uh, very much a, a sort of opening up of some ideas and discussions from our research and from conversations that we've had that we would sort of throw out to you for more discussion the second part then after the break is more of a closing down and some sort of tools and tips and what might we do about some of these issues um, as was said at the beginning, um, the slides absolutely will be available. Um, and even though this is being recorded on podcast, we won't be recording any of your discussions or any of your feedback of those discussions. It's just the bit where I'm talking that will be recorded. Um, if it doesn't make sense when we cut it together as a podcast, I've said I'll blog it anyway, so you will get something to take away and, and be able to use. Um, so I'm talking first about uh, this idea of trust being an important facet of supervision relationships and if you've looked at the supervision literature which you know you may well be very very familiar with trust often comes up as something that's desirable between <coughs> students and supervisors but hardly ever is that uh, defined or unpicked in terms of what trust is what it looks like we've had a couple of really excellent papers out in the last year or so about trust uh, between um, supervisors in supervision teams and the power that binds that paper is called um, but other than that, there's not much critical or sort of robust debate about how trust is built, what it looks like. Um, and that's where I started with this piece of, with this piece of work. So as, as we said at the beginning, I work in education, um, mentoring and coaching design for PhD students, postdocs, and then anybody who's about three to four years into their academic career. Through that, you get to hear a lot of conversations that people don't often talk about or they don't really tell anyone else. You know, you're pretty, very privileged to a lot of information about people's personal experiences of what's going on for them at work. Uh, I work a lot with people who are very stuck. So supervisors who've got completely stuck, students are completely stuck. So uh, when you read this, please do caveat it with this is not everybody. This is not everybody at Sheffield. They're not all in this situation. Um, it's just that those are the people who would seek me out um, to talk to me. So just trying to understand actually what's gone wrong, what are the tensions, what are the pitfalls of supervision, um, and how best can I help and support. And the stories would look something like this. So why, why do I do this piece of work on trust and supervision? So this is a kind of an amalgam quote of what students would tend to tell me when they phone up and say, I'm having a problem with <coughs> email or you know, however. Uh, I'm terrified of being asked how it's going. I don't know how it works. I'm lost, it's scary, so I avoid contact and I think that's really important, that sort of that hiding behaviour of I don't want to show myself or my work to anybody else, I'm not ready for anything to be seen, I don't feel confident to discuss or to be looked at. Um, when you dig down into that there's a lot about the unspoken rules of academia, how it works, how research works, the fact that the role boundaries are completely ill-defined and blurry between what student does and what the supervisor does and that's more complicated if somebody's coming from a professional career or background, um, if there might also be another staff member at the same university. Very often unclear end goals, so not knowing what a good thesis looks like, not knowing what an original contribution is, um, and not being able to get anybody to define those. Um, and then just the sense of it being a very long-term project that needs managing and people may be facing that kind of large-scale project for the first time, big unknown question for the first time. Um, also supervisors, so supervisors call me up normally when, uh, in their words, they've lost a student. And they say things like, again, it's kind of a, you know, a summarised quote really, I've tried hands-on, I've tried hands-off, I don't know what they need, and now they've stopped responding to emails. So there's a sense that 
supervisors were applying different kinds of ideas and techniques, changing their style to try and help somebody, the will was there, but um, this idea that someone stopped responding to emails and the more I chase, the less likely they are. Back to that idea of hiding again. So this chase-quarry effect, the more you chase someone down, the more they run. I've tried what works for me, that's often what we hear, especially in Sheffield because we have absolutely no supervisor, no compulsory supervisor training. We have lots that we offer through different different areas and different um, different ways. You know, I offer things that are around mentoring and coaching skill set. Careers offer things that are about how to supervise someone who is not going to have a career in academia, but th those are pieced together and they're very much on a voluntary basis. People very honestly said, actually, silence is golden and I've got work to do and if that person doesn't approach me for some supervision, I haven't chased them down and perhaps I've left it too long, etc. Um, really strong sense through many of our supervisors that if you flag a problem, you get more reporting to do. You have to fill in more forms, you come under more scrutiny. It makes more work than it solves to, to raise an issue with a student. And often supervisors will say to me, I don't know either. I don't know the answer to this question. It's, it's part of being a researcher, we just don't know. It's something to be found out. So sort of against this background, I was thinking, what is it? What is it that's not happening when people don't want to get into the room and show each other that there's something? that they don't know or show someone that they're, they're vulnerable. And it took me back to a quote that I encountered during my, uh, my master's degree, master's in education, about trust in the workplace and how trust is built and broken in the workplace. This is a big um, sort of review paper of all the literature going on on organisational trust development. And they define trust as a phenomenon which is about the willingness to accept uncertainty and be vulnerable in the face of insecurity. So, to not know, but to go and say to someone else, I don't know, I'm not sure. So working on this idea of um, hiding vulnerability and, and how we can help people feel more at ease in the face of insecurity. So, because if you look across the, uh, if you look across the literature, I'm not going to do a whole literature review, but to pull in some things here, it, in, in summary of more or less what most of the, the doctoral supervision literature would say, it's continual. Identity reappraisal, lots of new learning, steep learning curves. It's an uncertain time. And having that shifting identity and shifting sense of self can cause people to feel insecure. Being able to talk to somebody, make sense of those, show them and be vulnerable in their sight is uh, supported by good professional relationships. And the things that aren't resolved through that sense of, you know, declaring to somebody I'm stuck and I need help will be sustained throughout the, throughout the time in the PhD. Um, people do arrive with expectations for what that relationship will be like and if those expectations aren't matched they tend to feel that they don't trust that person more than if they, uh, than if they get exactly what they're expecting and I guess the background really we're, mo we're moving in this direction really for emotionally intelligent or multiply intelligent supervision and uh, and what that might look like in practice. So to sort of situate against the background of uncertainty within the relationship, I had two questions that I sought to answer and I've put the methodology at the end if anybody wants to know how I collected these data, but I thought it perhaps wasn't important as much for the for the workshopping <coughs> part today. Um, I firstly asked what are those vulnerabilities that exist in student supervisor relationships? and through which behaviours is trust built. Um, I spoke to students and supervisors in 
five different universities, so five different uh, research intensive universities across the UK and ran them as discussion groups and sort of um, used all of that plus some online data, anonymous data that I uh, got through a blog. I had an open blog where people could just comment and write, write their stories of supervision to me. So sort of amalgamating all of that data is what I've got on the next two slides. And I just heard on Friday that the Leadership Foundation have sort of finally signed off on the copy. So that, that report will be, with all the data and all the analysis and everything, available on their website within the next few days. Um, and I'll be happy to sort of send it out to this group once, once it's in. But we can have a look. Um, but if you would just turn to a partner for two minutes and, or, you know, a three, whoever's near to you, make it easy on yourselves, and just list off some of the vulnerabilities that you think exist for students and for supervisors within that doctoral relationship. I'll just give you a couple of minutes to, to think about that. <laughs> I've got over the next two slides just the headlines from what students across these um, institutions that I spoke to talked to me about. And I'll, I'll give a little bit of explanation, but like I said, there's a lot more information in the report. So this is for, uh, for the students. So if we think about the vulnerabilities in this context as opportunities for trust to develop. So something, you know, there's something unknown, there's something we feel insecure about, and that can be seen, I guess, positioned, understood as an opportunity to go to someone and build some trust with them around that, that area. Um, people talked about the, this idea that um, high learning and the process of research just involves not knowing. You know, we don't start off on a structured programme, we start off with a real question we don't know the answer to and that research is inherently risky and that learning at this level is completely different in terms of its structure and its landmarks of success than anything ever done before. Uh, people talked a lot about sort of making comparisons between master's degrees and doctorates and saying, where have the numbers gone? You know, I used to know if I'd done okay or if I'd done really well, and now I have no idea. If fine means fine, there's no problems, or if fine means it's just fine, it's not very good. You know, so there were sort of indicative languages and, and just the not knowing if you were okay, if you were on track, uh, you probably find as well that the, the word am I on track or how do I know if I'm on track gets used all the time. So really looking for some sense of a, a framework for the overall learning. Lots of students feel that, um, you know, I get asked all the time, are there any pedagogies of doctoral study? Are there any? Is it, you know, Has anybody ever thought about this and say, well, yeah, actually, but it's, uh, the framework might not be as explicit as it is when you get a handbook that tells you what you're going to be assessed against and what that will look like. So unmet expectations for the doctor and for the supervisor relationship. And I brought a resource with me today, which is from um, a workshop that I do with new supervisors on sort of doing that initial contracting phase. I know lots of people will have things that they do already. Um, and things to adapt. So it's, it's just there for information. I know Anne in particular has got a really lovely tool, got a really nice tool, which is sort of to be co-completed between new students and supervisors as well. That's uh, really good there, um, which I, I will give out to you in, in just a second and let you, you let you have a look at that. Mm. Uh, but in terms of unmet expectations for the doctor, I think also the employability issue comes into it as well. A lot of people don't enter into a, a doctorate understanding the bigger picture of whether they're likely to be able to remain in academia, in higher education research, and that can really come as a, as a catastrophic shock to people who uh, don't get what they expected, which was the, you know, the professorship at the end of the PhD. Um, 
students tell me they've got the most to lose and in fact it's very difficult for them to raise an issue, leave a programme, change supervisor because if you do two years of a PhD and then leave you have a two year failed PhD on your CV, you don't have two years of research experience that counts towards something else you've basically blown it and you know people feel that they've blown their career to, to leave a PhD without it being completed so actually they are the most the most vulnerable party in this. Um, getting supervision, advice, direction and feedback. Feedback came up in almost every person I spoke to throughout the thing. The, the way that trust can be built or broken within the giving and receiving of feedback, which is why I've got it on the, the second half of the programme this afternoon. Um, also, absolutely more complicated if there's more than one supervisor, whether those supervisors agree with each other, whether they're from the same kind of discipline. We've got a department at in the University of Sheffield, which um, everyone has an academic supervisor, an industry supervisor, and then one from our advanced manufacturing park. And they all have very different ideas and agendas about what this project is for. And the students expected to kind of tie that up and make sense of it all and manage this team as well as managing their project as well. And then something that really massively interested me, and I followed up with a, a study that's ongoing from this, which is what are the processes for seeking help or for escalating complaints about supervision? Where do you go to? Uh, often it's the PGR tutor, PGR lead, PGR director, convener, whatever you call that, your head of, head of doctoral studies, whoever that person is for your department or faculty. Um, are they independent? Do they know their role? Are they supported? How have they been recruited? All of those questions about that role is something that I've been following up with. So actually, yeah, if you've got a problem and you're proactively seeking to do something about it, what can be done about it, and is it all stacked against you from the start with that kind of thing? A similar slide for supervisors. Recruitment practices came top of everything. Everybody wanted to talk about the fact that there was massive pushes to increase numbers of students. People often had to supervise students they'd not met, never seen the work of, um, and had no choice in selecting, preparing, agreeing with these students before. General acknowledgement that all kinds of team leadership, especially supervisory leadership, is difficult because it's not so well defined and because of what their sector's like at the minute in terms of the pressures um, on, on doctorates, doctoral completions, on academic careers. Lots of complicated processes and checkpoints and being a person who is you know, often thought of as being university admin or university management. It was, you know, and I want to tell you another thing about this and I can't find this online. And you know, how, how do I tie up this paperwork that needs to go in with this process and things like that. So we, we would tend to have you know, this, this arm not knowing what this arm's doing in terms of the department, faculty, general university structures and monitoring processes for what's going on in doctorates. Accountability for things like um, research integrity, what gets published and whether that data is okay, and for getting students completed on time. That was, a, I guess, the second biggest thing people wanted to talk about, the fact that the three years, the three-year cap on PhDs was kind of making everything much more, more difficult to do and balancing that tension between giving someone time to explore but also making sure that they weren't out of pocket at the end of it because you know if a student goes over time or if they're unfunded it's their they they are the person who is the uh, yeah, they, they bear the financial penalty basically of going over time and being accountable to that and also to research councils to the university um, and then again very interested f from a Sheffield uh, angle in the bottom too because that's something I feel I can do 
something about whether the supervision is valued and what is the value of supervision, whether it's rewarded, recognised, whether people get a chance to talk about it with each other, um, and how it's, how it's positioned and treated within department cultures. Is it something that's important to us here? Is it something that just happens without thinking about it? Um, and then secondly, this idea of supervisory teams and supervisory mentoring, which people talked about in terms of, you know, my, someone might say to me, I, as a new supervisor, I was paired with a senior colleague who was my supervisory mentor, but actually they were completely absent. They didn't do any of the work. They called themselves the strategic partner. You know, I had to defend the student from them. So that, that new supervisor, on the promise of having a mentor, that it, it's not a mentoring relationship. It's a very tense vulnerable relationship in itself so that's those two things that I'm, I'm particularly interested in there before I move on to sort of the, the building and breaking of trust briefly I want to give you these which uh, are from a session for new supervisors and all I do is give people these lists of things that students tell me they don't know or they wish they'd known at the beginning and invite them as I'll invite you now to have a quick skim pick a couple that resonate with you and just discuss them with the person next to you But it's yours to uh, to take away and have a think about. And the reason I've given you that is to sort of tie up with the idea of how trust might be built and might be broken. Because the, the intention of this kind of um, tool to support this thinking was that the supervisors would go away and have a conversation, not just have good intentions about good supervision, but actually have an open conversation. And if we look sort of at... And I mean, not just my report, but lots of the research on trust and how trust is built or broken. Uh, an ongoing process over time, absolutely slow to build and quick to destroy. And very importantly, I think, for trust to develop, trust behaviours must be demonstrated. We you know, really physically matters what you do and how you speak to each other. And I think having this sort of conversation and contract is part of having these obvious behaviours. Um, trust can be built or broken within formal supervision meetings. We'll talk about feedback later on. Being included or excluded. Uh, and then between meetings in terms of things like following through on actions, following up on conversations, keeping appointments and keeping confidences, all the very obvious behaviours that would build or break trust. Uh, it was reported in this study to be built uh, when knowledge was freely shared together rather than feeling sort of left out or that something was not being said or that you know people were were being kept guessing about what they were supposed to do and how disclosure openness finding common ground and shared interests which is very interesting in terms of thinking about aspects like do you have to like somebody to supervise them well do they have to like you uh, do you have to be friends with them is friendship part of this and i don't know <laughs> i don't know the answer to that i believe not i'm not friends with everyone i work with and we get on fine but it's about being predictable in that relationship understanding where the boundaries are and where the roles end um if a supervisor perceives student values the input it was reported as being more trusting uh, being inclusive, collegial, valuing other people's contributions, giving credit where it's due, all very active forms of trust building. And reported that it was more likely to build if the student had been entrusted with something, they were more likely to trust back in the supervisor. 
um, and that we know already that being trusted with something raises people's confidence, self-esteem, the likelihood that they'll come back to you and talk to you about the, the problems that they're having. So just to position that in terms of um, the, the things that we've got on this list and one of the key facets of trust and trust building, looking at this idea of predictability, knowing what you're getting from someone, knowing where the role sits and what the boundaries are and looking at that. So if yes, absolutely, we accept that vulnerability is inherent and that trust is built over time, needs renegotiating, built through every interaction. Um, and that quite a lot of the things on this list are about making the process of unknowns more predictable and more known. What then might that look like for you? And it's a bit, a bit more of a thought exercise than something we can conclude on today. But if you just now, for one minute, think of somebody, the first person that pops into your head that you would say you trust. Who is your trusted colleague? And then think, how did you come to trust them? Are there caveats to that? Are there things you trust them with and things you wouldn't trust them with? Things you trust them to do and things you wouldn't trust them to do? And how do you know when somebody trusts you? And I'm going to leave us for sort of the last five minutes or so to again just discuss with a partner next to you. If we're putting predictability here as one of the four domains of trust, we've got integrity here, competence and benevolence, all things that were described through those trust building behaviours. But just thinking about this one in particular, how, how are you predictable? And I know people always say, you know, oh, you're so predictable, as if it's a negative quality. I don't think it's a really positive quality at work. People know what to expect from you. So just two minutes with a partner. How are you predictable? How do you respond to other people's predictability? How do you know they trust you? And we'll leave it there. Okay.